everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelinson Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As we have done the last few years with our year-end segment, we have with us great friend, day one supporter, David Dakota, and along with my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, join in for this 2023 end-of-year segment. Always one of my favorite episodes. David, you ready to do this? Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to join you guys for this year on segment. And we had uh, one heck of a season this year. So I'm glad to uh, to be on and excited to to discuss it all with you both. And Steve, you ready to roll? Absolutely. Absolutely ready. I think we got to start, right? I mean, the, the, the absolute star of the season was Mr. Novak Djokovic. I mean, what? He plays only 12 tournaments. He wins seven of them. Uh, won three slams, was in the final of the one he missed. Uh, in fact, it was a fifth set. Um, Steve and I, you, Steve and I have talked about this a little bit. We'll start with David on his thoughts. Was this a better year than maybe in 2021 where Novak won 27 slam matches in a row, lost the last one versus this one where, you know, he was really only a set away. Again, the main difference in 2021 was that pressure buildup, right? When you win 27 out of 28, the pressure just becomes enormous. He didn't have to deal with that with the buildup in New York this year. Yeah, I think there's a bit of, of nuance in that because maybe from a peak level standpoint, that 2021 season was going to be incredibly difficult to replicate. But when you look at this year and the ability to win three slams and bounce back from a, a tough loss in the final of Wimbledon against Carlos and at the at the age that he is and his ability to fend off this next generation of rising stars, you have to think it's a little bit more impressive and look no further than Novak's words himself, calling it one of his best seasons. Obviously, he didn't get the Davis Cup done, which he wanted to, but from from a level of you know how impressive this season was, he really checked all the boxes. Maybe from a peak level standpoint, he might say that the 2021 year and the win over Rafa in the semis of Roland Garros was probably the most impressive moment of the last couple of years, but the resilience and just his belief in winning in any situation this year, seven out of 12 tournaments, like you said, it's, it's incredibly impressive. Steve. Yeah, David. I mean, a couple of things. I, I think good assessment from David. 2021 was not as good a year as this one, in my view, because for a lot of reasons, there just was so much, you look at the titles that he won this year, you know, outside of the slams. I mean, both times he's in all four slam finals, he wins three. But this time, you know, he won a couple of Masters 1000s in Cincinnati and Paris. He won the year-end championships, which was not the case a couple of years ago. So I actually compare it a bit more. The ones that I think were superior and only slightly so are 2011, 2015. 2011, Novak opens the campaign with uh, with winning his first 41 matches, finally lost to Federer at the French, ends the year 70 and 6. He did miss one slam final because Federer beat him in the semis at Roland Garros, but it was a spectacular year. Didn't end it that strong, though. 2015, to me, was the best of all because in 2011, to get back to 2011 briefly, he did win five Masters 1000s, and, and uh, he beat Rafa in four of them. He beat Rafa in two slam finals as well. So 6-0 and against Nadal, including two the finals of Wimbledon in the Open and, and the two Masters 1000 finals, just incredible achievement, and went 4-1 and against Roger that year as well. So 
amazing season. 2015, he goes 82 and six, wins 11 titles, wins six Masters, 1000s. And again, you know, it, it's it's three majors. So it's an embarrassment of riches in, in a nutshell, David, because he's had four years now, 11, 15, 21, 23, winning three slams in one year. So to compare them is very difficult. But in the end, I would rate 15 as the best, 11 second best. This one, number three, and oddly, 2021 at number four. It just shows you how many spectacular seasons he's had. Well said. Um, I mean, gosh, any one of those years is an absolute career year for any other player. And let alone you just described four years and you've and you've left out plenty of other good years as well. It's just extraordinary what he's accomplished. Um, let's let's switch over to Coco Goff because <clears throat> and I'll start with David on this one. You know, her run in the summer after the first round exit of Wimbledon, there were a lot of questions being asked that I'm sure from uh, not only people who view the sport um, and cover the sport, but from Coco and her team herself. That first round loss, what she did after that was just extraordinary. You know, she wins Washington. She loses in a tough quarterfinal to Pagula, basically her only loss in the summer after Wimbledon um, in Montreal. She wins Cincinnati where she beat Sviatek in the semis, then winning the U.S. Open, beating Sabalenka in the final. Um, you know, Steve and I, again, have talked about this previously. Steve kind of, I think as Coco was picking up st- steam in the summer steve started to sink started to state like you know we could have a possible golf pagula u.s open final i don't think steve was there right as she started her summer run when we'll get to steve and hear his thoughts on that but for you i mean what were your thoughts after wimbledon then when did you really feel like whoa she is on something special here and she could she could win it all in new york it's a great question david and i think for me I really perked up when when I heard that BG, Brad Gilbert, was joining her coaching team. I know, obviously, in light of all the success that she had after the summer, there's been some debate, you know, how much was a credit to him? How much was it her stepping up her game? It's obviously a combination of, of multitude of factors. But what's really interesting to me is that there was really no guarantee that the, that she was going to have this kind of meteoric rise. You know, Dave, you and I had talked about in the past how she's had a lot of struggles on the forehand side from a technical standpoint. In terms of her ranking, I think she was kind of middling in sort of the 8 to 15 range for the last couple of years. And for her to be able to have the summer that she did and win that first Grand Slam, which again was no guarantee, I think it's it's an immense accomplishment and I hope that it's, it's going to be difficult to replicate that kind of success. But I think once she, I believe it was over, she got that win over Iga in Cincinnati and then Muhova in the final. I think after she had built up all that momentum, I think it was going to be very hard for her to be denied at the U S open. Now, obviously there was a little bit of fortune in play that Iga lost to Ostapenko and then Coco was able to beat her in that super hot day in the semifinals, but um, just not something I would have seen coming after Wimbledon and, you know, full credit to her and, and the team for everything she was able to accomplish this season. And Steve, you know, you're on record saying, you know, we can, we can possibly get maybe an all us final Pagula and Goff. Um, Jesse didn't get, you know, as far as obviously Coco did, but looking back now, when did you really start to feel confident? Um, I mean, again, no one saw this coming, Steve, after her first round loss at Wimbledon. 
No, I well, it came in stages with me, David. I think first the uh, Washington was was an important win because it was the first tournament with Gilbert, and I thought this something might be uh, sh shaping up very well here. And then, as you mentioned, Pagula was a hard fought match, not discouraging. You know, her doubles partner, great player in her own right. And then when she won Cincinnati, I thought Look, this is getting really serious now. And you could also see the Sriantec. You know, losing to Coco there, that wasn't be Iga's best tennis of the season, really, from Wimbledon through the summer, which she was not at the very top of her game. So I, I, I thought to myself, boy, Coco's got as good a chance as anybody here. I just want to remind the listeners a bit, David, of something you and I talked about over the summer. And this is to get back to the other David's point. Brad Gilbert played a very significant role. And this was almost history repeating itself, going back to Andy Roddick in 2003, 20 years earlier, because he starts with Roddick at Queens Club. Roddick wins the tournament, loses to Federer in the semis of Wimbledon, dominates the summer, caps it all off with a U.S. Open win, and ends up the year number one in the world in that case. And so it was like a stretch there where he won five out of seven tournaments. So I don't think it's an accident in either case. I'm not, and, and, and David's point is well taken. It's not entirely Brad. Coco had to go out there and win the matches. And in fact, Coco won four three setters at the U.S. Open and three times came from a set down, including that final against Sabalenka. So she really was terrific in clutch situations and bailed herself out and competed beautifully. But I just think the influence and the presence of Gilbert and making her believe in herself was was really a, a very big part of the of the equation. And we'll stick with another uh, young American on the men's side, Ben Shelton. They call him Big Match Ben, and I guess that illustrated well in uh, 2023. You know, <clears throat> he did very well, and I'm going to mess up my ears. Hopefully not. The, the fall of 2022 on the Challenger Tour, right? He really made his mark in the fall of 2022. No one saw his run in Australia coming, right? He makes the quarters has inconsistencies during the year, makes the semis of the U.S. Open, um, also wins his first title in the fall. That happened in Tokyo. I think in 2024, Ben will have a better year as far as consistency goes. I don't think he may match his uh, those, two those two slam results, but I think he will be better in the fact that he will have a much more consistent year than he did in 2023. He was still trying to figure everything out. I mean, no one saw this coming. Steve, what, what what are your thoughts on that? You know, maybe I'm even a bit more optimistic, David. I think you're right. It's good. It's not easy to replicate those results. You know, a quarter in semis in the in the major events in Australian U.S. Open. However, I, I think he's very capable of it, and I agree with you about the overall consistency would be greater. What was so terrific for him was that obviously that was a very difficult stretch post-Australia all the way up to the U.S. Open. and he met, But he didn't lose faith in himself and had that great run and avenged his loss to Tommy Paul in Australia by beating Tommy at the Open. He also beat Tiapo, loses a, to Novak, good learning experience. And then in the fall, as you mentioned, he won that title, but he also had a win over Sinner. He, was, he played really extraordinary tennis in the fall to sort of say to everybody else, look, I may have taken my hard knocks post-Australia, pre-U.S. Open, but now I'm here to stay. So I, I'm, I actually believe, David, that in 2024, we're going to see Ben Shelton at the bottom of the top 10 
in the world, somewhere nine or 10 in the world. That's my guess. David, your thoughts. And and also, uh, I think we're all in agreement there here that he has the highest ceiling of all the Americans currently on tour at this point. Hard to argue with. And I, I think first to, to speak about the consistency, you both hit the nail on the head in terms of what he needs to accomplish in order to get to what Steve is talking about in terms of the, the lower echelon of the, of the top 10, his record on clay and grass last year. So between April and, and early July was six and 11. And if you take out the two results, which I see, so you don't want to discount those because those are huge from a ranking standpoint. But if you take out Australian open quarters and U S open semis, his ranking on even outdoor hard court was 13 and 11 last year. So that's those, that's where he can make those inroads to get from that sort of 15 to 20 range where he is currently to make that leap that someone like a Taylor Fritz and a Francis Tiafo have been able to do to get to the top 10. And with having this year underneath him, that experience is going to be very uh, powerful for him. And in terms of the highest ceiling, I mean, the type of firepower that he possesses, and it's more than just big serve, big forehand, right? We've seen that before from, you know, American tennis players that we followed in, in the past couple decades, but he's got a moxie to him. He's got a ton of mental strength. We saw that on display on the biggest stages in the sport. Uh, it's hard not to be excited about what, what Ben has to offer, uh, not just next year, but but for the entirety of his career. Well said. Well said by both of you. David, <laughs> just a quick just a quick follow-up to that. I also think that the biggest difference to me in the fall, and I thought it was astounding, was the improvement in his ground game. I mean, I worried about the level of consistency we saw even at the open, as great as he was. But I felt like he was just so much more solid from the back of the court than he had been. That's the other thing that encourages me, because David already mentioned about he's not just a you know a one-two punch serve forehand player. Never was. But I feel like now he can call on more options, and now he can sort of show these guys at le- that he can at least hold his own with them for the baseline and then start opening up and being more explosive. So I'm very encouraged about the growth in his game as well. I think all aspects of his still have room to improve, and that's scary for the rest of the tour. He's going to figure out the return of serve as well. I think his athletic ability, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's underrated because people all see it. He's also a very, very good athlete. So um, stay tuned and see how, how well Ben Shelton does in 2024 and beyond. Okay, back to a, uh, I'd say a, a trifecta of players on the WTA tour. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, <clears throat> Jesse Pagula, Steve, you've been pretty consistent with with how highly you think of, of of Jesse and she's I mean as consistent as she goes right is 2024 we thought 2023 would be it is 2024 the year where in the slam she really makes her mark remember for the listeners Jesse still hasn't made a semi of a slam now I don't mean that's a horrible thing making the quarters of all slams is unbelievable I'm just saying for that next step um are we still buying stock with Jesse here Steve I am. I definitely am. I just feel like, look, the next most important tournament argue, arguably is the WTA finals. They played in horrendous conditions in Cancun, to be sure, with the wind and the rain. But she was just so tough mentally and so consistent from the baseline and so and her usual tough Pagula self and got to the finals and granted was routed by Iga, but that was no disgrace. She'd had so many good wins during the week, including beating Coco. And so I feel like that 
we're going to see it. I'd be, let me put it this way. I'd be really surprised if we don't see her in at least one Grand Slam semifinal this year. And I wouldn't be shocked to see her in a final. She went from, uh, from her sort of her lofty residence at number three in the world, where she spent so much time to ending the year at five. But that was really more about the, the emergence and growth of Coco and Rabaka and, and others. So it wasn't that she really slipped. And I think in 2024, she'll get over that mental hurdle and we'll see her semis or finals of a major. Well, maybe we'll get your uh, Goff Pagula prediction one year later in 2024, <laughs> as opposed to 2023. David, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on Jessica Pagula? It's all mental. Like, like Steve said, I think from a physical and, and playing level standpoint, she has all the ingredients. I think one thing that she doesn't get enough credit for is she takes very good care of her early round matches and opponents. I don't think she's spending a ton of energy playing long three setters, getting down set in a break to, to opponents that she shouldn't be struggling with. So that's a big strength in her game. And she comes into a lot of these round of 16s and even this year quarterfinals of majors in, in good form and fresh. And she just hasn't been able to, to get over the mental hurdle, like Steve said, case in point in the Vondrasova match at, at Wimbledon. Now, no shame losing to the eventual champion, but that's a place where she, she kind of had the match on her plate and just wasn't able to close. So I think she's got everything it takes. The ranking is there. She's going to be getting to the quarterfinal stages and i think it's just a matter of time uh i'm gonna ad lib here because you just jog my memory of that wimbledon final with Anz jabor who everyone thought was a heavy favorite and she was a heavy favorite and we just saw the nerves got a hold of Anz on that one and we'll see uh i'm still a big believer in Anz, and i i hope and not only me i think a, a lot of tennis fans hope she gets over the hump in 2024 and gets her first slam I want to continue on, and, and David, we'll stick with you on this one. Iga Sviatek, I mean, there's no signs of her level dipping at all in 2024. She's just rock solid. Really interesting year for Iga from, from my perspective. I think, and if some of the listeners uh, tuned in for the Breakpoint show on Netflix, you kind of got a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at how she thinks, how she works mentally with her coach, and I think 2023 was a tricky year for her in which she put an immense amount of pressure on herself to continue to be number one, to continue to have the same Grand Slam success that she's had in the past. And I think you saw how overwhelmed she was with emotion when she beat Muhova to win Roland Garros. And like, like you both have said, it's no secret that the second half of the season was less successful for her. And despite that, she still finished number one in the world. And I think in some ways a lot of that pressure that she put on herself to have those results, to win every tournament might have sort of faded a little bit. And I think she's going to have a much more um, positive outlook on 2024 and it's going to enable her to play that high level of tennis and really suffocate a lot of her opponents on the court without applying that, that sort of extra pressure on herself. So I think, you know, at least one slam next year, if not more. Steve. Yeah, I, I would. I'm essentially in accord with David. I, I feel like she does. She has put a lot of pressure on herself. There's no doubt about it. You feel it. It's almost tangible in some of these matches to watch her, you know, compete. And but I feel like what we saw from her in the WTA finals at the end, the way she peaked for those last couple of rounds, so really the whole tournament in in horrendous conditions. But I feel like that will be a, that'll have a nice carryover, and I give her a pretty decent chance to win 
the Australian Open. So I believe that Iga will solidify her place for the third year in a row and finish number one again in 2024 and win two majors. I'm, I'm going for two. And I think Australia may well be one of them. And then uh, we'll see whether it's Roland Garros or the U.S. Open to back it up. But she's I, I don't see her settling for one in the coming campaign. And I'll leave you with the last one. I want to hear your thoughts. Arena Sabalenka, you know, I, I knew she only had one slam title, but I needed to confirm it because I just feel like she's in the end of these tournaments a lot. And I definitely think she will add um, to her one title. I think it will be this year. Um, I was surprised that it is only one. Your thoughts on Sabalenka, Steve? I'll start with you on this one. Well, listen, I mean, it's only one, but look at the, look how great, you know, semis of Roland Garros, semis of Roland Finals, U.S. Open. So she she had the most consistent record of any player in all four slams combined. Uh, yes, I think she'll, she'll win another. Listen, she got, she was very close at the Open. Coco turned that match around after losing the final. Sabalenka won the first set 6-2, so she was awfully close to winning her second major and a second one on hard courts. Yeah, I, I feel like she's she's a little more stable as a competitor now. She, you know, she's such an emotional competitor, but she's so gifted as a shot maker and so determined now and, and a, a thorough professional. So I look for her to win one more in the coming year. I'm eager to one for Sabalenka, and I haven't decided who's winning the other. David? I'll be really interested to see how she comes out of the blocks uh, in Australia for 2024. And the reason I say that is because Sabalenka, for all intents and purposes, put together a WTA Player of the Year type of resume last year, even though she ultimately failed to finish year on number one and couldn't get it done in Cancun, uh, like we discussed. And I say, I think got a little bit rattled in the final of the U.S. Open against Coco, you know, tough crowd, etc., um, you know, we're, we're handing out a lot of, a lot of slams with certainty on the WTA side next year, but that field is getting very tough, right? We had sort of a big three of sorts between Sabalenka, Rabakina, and Sviatek over the course of the last, let's call it year and a half, year and change. And there's other names coming up now, right? Ons is still knocking on the door. Coco's got a slam. We're incredibly bullish on Pagula a name that we haven't talked about, Naomi Osaka's coming back next year. And we've seen the kind of success that past WTA Grand Slam champions have had coming back after these types of breaks. So I think there's there's a lot of names that are knocking on the door. And Sablanka is going to have to play at the exact same level, if not better, that she played this year in order to to add to that total. Because it's not a given. And in the later rounds of these tournaments, when... It's all about momentum and mental strength. You know, she's kind of been 50-50, I'd say, in those departments. I'll, I'll be very interested to see how she starts out the year. I want to flip it back now to the ATP Tour, and I want to talk about two of the young guys who um, are currently the biggest threat to, to Novak. And I think if you looked at 2022, it would be clear that you would say Carlos Alcaraz is the biggest threat to Novak Djokovic. Now you look at the end of 2023, and you may not be able to say that as clearly, right? You got Yannick Sinner. Um, Sinner beat Novak twice late in the year. I'm personally, I know there was some concern about Carlos's year after Wimbledon. <clears throat> it wasn't as great. I'm, I'm not that worried about that. If he's healthy, he'll figure out the length of the year. Um, he'll, he'll figure out how to pace himself during the length of the year. Um, which one do you think is currently a bigger threat 
to Novak. And I'll start with, with Steve on this one. Is it Yannick Sinner or is it Carlos Alcaraz? Or in your eyes, is it still, you know, neck and neck between both of them? Yeah, I think it's a very close call, David. I mean, yes. What's impressive about the two Sinner wins over Novak in the four matches he played against him, because he had a split for the year. He lost him in the semis of Wimbledon in straight. And then he beat him in the round robin of the year-end championships, ATP finals. And Novak came back and beat him decisively in the final of that event. And then remarkably in the Davis Cup semifinals, uh, Novak had triple match point against Sinner. And Sinner somehow held on from love 40 and pulled out the match. So uh, I think it's very close, though, because Carlos, yes, Carlos had the hard-fought match with Novak at, at the French. And then he cramped after they split the first two sets and did beat him in that terrific five-set Wimbledon final, then lost the epic in Cincinnati, and Novak from match point down eventually won that in almost four hours across three remarkable sets. And finally, Novak beats him easily in the ATP finals, indoors where Carlos seemed his least comfortable. So I just feel like, look, it really comes down to this. I think they're both going to be, they're going to be some epics between Novak and both of them in the coming year. And then in turn, Sinner Alcaraz is going to be a big rivalry in the coming year as well. So I think we have a lot to look forward to uh, amidst that trio. And, and I think it'll, it'll be very hard fought. I think Sinner, in my view, may well end up ahead of Carlos in the coming year. I don't, I'm not certain of that. I think it'll be close. I think it'll be very close with Novak, Sinner, and, and Alcaraz. And whether Novak goes all out for the number one ranking again, I don't know, but I think between the other two, Sinner, because his second half of 2023 was far more successful than Carlos's, and he also beat Carlos two out of three times this year himself. They split in Indian Wells and Miami, and then Sinner beat Carlos in the fall. So I think we have a lot to look forward to in all of those matchups. But I think Novak at this stage has just as much respect for Sinner as he does for Carlos because the two matches that he lost, one was a third set tiebreak. Who would have thought that? And then Sinner comes back from triple match point down to win that match in the Davis Cup semifinal. So that just showed how t- how, how much the mental toughness that Sinner has at this stage of his career. And uh, I, again, looking at Sinner, I just can't imagine we're not going to see one major on his plate in 2024. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that Cincy final because, gosh, I remember that still so clearly in my head. And in Chicago, the conditions that day, it was on a Sunday, was extremely humid. It was absolutely brutal. And I remember talking, I remember putting it on Twitter. I remember talking to you, Steve, about it. When Novak was struggling that heat, you remember the sun was starting only like to dissipate yeah. from the TV, right? Yeah. You only needed like, so if Novak could hang on for another 15 minutes, the sun would have left. It was still human as all get out, but they didn't have the sun to deal with. And I mean, three hours and 40 something minutes, um, two out of three sets. I kept thinking to myself, oh, my God, how are they going to replicate this in New York if they face each other three out of five? That didn't happen. But um, that that match with that, that final and since he was unbelievable. David, well, I, I want to go to I, you I, now. Sinner or Alcaraz, bigger threat to Novak. Yeah, just sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I just felt like Cincinnati was even better than Wimbledon. It's hard to compare a best of three set final in a Masters 1000 to a Wimbledon final, which is the preeminent event in tennis. But I would say especially that third set from both players in Cincinnati, that was the set of the year. David. Without a doubt, Sinner has arrived. And and Steve pointed out all the examples to support that. And I don't think that Sinner isn't going to be one of these 
edge cases we've seen where somebody who's put together very strong indoor hardcore results after the U.S. Open and then potentially doesn't see it translate to the following year. I think Sinner has firmly cemented himself in that top four like we talked about. Here's, here's the difference from my perspective. I'd like to see it happen three out of five. And that's not to discredit any of the wins that he's had over Novak in, um, in Turin and then at the Davis Cup finals. But I, with, with Carlos, we saw him do it in three out of five in, in probably what I would call the most shocking result of the 2023 season. Just with all his pedigree and, and all the skill, I still didn't think that Carlos would get Novak in the Wimbledon final. And if Novak doesn't miss a, that swing volley in the fifth set, maybe it still doesn't happen. But with Sinner, I want to see it against Novak in three out of five. We saw Sinner had a tough loss to Zverev at the U.S. Open in you know, probably one of the best matches of the entire year in five sets. And, and I think we need to see it from him at the Grand Slam level. Um, obviously, semifinals of Wimbledon was a bit of a, uh, an easier match for Novak. But I still think Carlos is the number one threat if we're going back to our original question. Um, I think he's got a little bit more belief and confidence that he can get it done against Novak in the biggest stage. Uh, but we'll see. Australia is going to be a great uh, testing point for that. And I hope that all three of those um, guys are, are in the semis and, and we get to see them battle it out. You know, I just, just want to... Quick, quick ahead, comment, Steve. David. I, I just, I, I, those are all excellent points. I just feel that Sinner improved so markedly over the second half of the year. His serve is so much better. His self-belief right. is so much greater that I, I, I would have totally agreed with David uh, up until the latter stages of the season on Carlos versus Yannick. Now, I think it's neck and neck, and that's what I think makes things so intriguing. And I think that Sinner comes into 2024 with maybe a slightly more confidence. And But it's a point well taken from David. He has to prove it in best of five. Uh, I, but I, I have no reason to believe that he won't. I mean, it was improbable that Carlos could could come from a pasting in the first set of that Wimbledon final and set point down in the second set tiebreak with Novak with a routine back in cross court to go two. If he can win that point, he's two sets to love. And Carlos still managed to find a way to win that in five sets. Remarkable achievement. Sinner, I think, physically is up to that task, but we're going to find out. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said you talked about that second set at Wimbledon, Steve, because everyone remembers the swinging volley in the fifth set. But that second set tiebreak, remember how locked in Novak was for that time period during tiebreakers. I mean, he was unbelievable. He had an unbelievable record in, in tiebreakers. He didn't make unforced errors and, I don't know, a bazillion tiebreaks in a row. Um, for Carlos to win that second set tiebreaker was, was something. And that obviously changed the flow uh, of that Wimbledon match. Okay. I want to talk about two comeback players um, that I think combined played less than uh, less matches than than fingers on a hand here. And that's a guy who's currently ranked 664th. He'll have a protected ranking of number nine when he plays Australia, Mr. Rafa Nadal, and then Nick Kyrgios. And I want to talk about Nick first. I'm, I'm going to hear your thoughts on both, but I want to bring it back to 2022 because everybody talks about Nick's run at Wimbledon and it was a great run. Right. Um, and he played Novak very well in that final. I thought that final was really high quality from both guys. You know, Nick was really close in New York too. I mean, people don't remember that 
Uh, he beat Medvedev in the round of 16. He lost five sets in the quarters to Kachanov. He was, I mean, he was on his way to maybe getting to another final in New York. He didn't. He lost that five sets to Kachanov in quarters. But um, I, I'll start with David with this. Um, your thoughts on both Nick and Rafa, and can Nick get back to that 2022 level, at least that second half of that level of that year? For most players, we could probably talk about 2022 success in that context as something that's relatively in the rearview mirror, but recent, recent enough to be able to replicate or get back to that level. With Nick Kyrgios, I'm not sure that that's possible, and I don't want this to get aggregated, but what I will say is that the talent is there. We, we've seen that on display for, for a long time. But at some point, when you're away from the tour for this long, I'm not sure if the talent can carry the water in terms of replicating those types of results. And it's, it's, it's really a shame because we've talked about Kyrgios' work ethic in the past. We've talked about his interest in playing competitive tennis at the highest level. But this, a lot of this comes down to injuries. He's wanted, I think he wants to get back to where he was in 2022. But with this wrist stuff, and now I'm sure we all heard the news overnight that he won't be coming to the Australian Open now. At some point, it feels like 2022 was light years away for Kyrgios. So I'm curious to hear, Steve, your thoughts on that. Um, before before we, we pass it on, I think in terms of Rafa, uh, totally different conversation. Um Look, the, the training right now in, in Kuwait, if, if the two of you have seen the videos of him hitting with Arthur Feast, looks pretty good right now. The training block is in full swing. With Rafa, where I, where I struggle a little bit is that when he comes back to playing at the, mo- at the highest of competitive levels and pushes his body that much further, that's when we start seeing some of these injuries come into play. And that's what happened against Mackenzie McDonald at the Australian Open last year. So... I don't know if I'm ready to make a bold prediction of, hey, I, I agree with Rafa that this could be his last year. It's too early to tell. Uh, I think the level will be there. I think he's kind of selling himself short, and, and Uncle Tony absolutely is in the interviews that we've heard. But um, Rafa will be back, and I think he'll be playing at a decently high level. Steve. Ditto. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I say that with some jest, but listen. It's a point well taken. The most important point David made is such a big difference between watching somebody in a practice session and putting them out there for real in a match under tense circumstances. And Rafa's had such a wide range, such a litany of injuries. And there's so many things that could go wrong. Uh, we hope for the best. We're going to, Brisbane in the Australian Open will tell us a lot about where he might be headed. If he can get through those tournaments okay physically, and even if he doesn't win that many matches, but he looks, looks, you know, he's not calling for the trainer, and there's no no indication of any re emerging injury, and suddenly the, the hip is not suddenly killing him again, or the, the feet, then, then I would have some encouragement. And I think really what it all comes down to with him is. Can he suddenly find some health during the clay court season? Because I'm not expecting too much in Australia. I think he genuinely is not either. But can he suddenly get on something of a roll on the clay, win a lot of matches on the clay, and again, remain injury-free during that phase and give Roland Garros one last crack, try to get a 15th there? 
there, there's, there's an outside possibility of that. As for Nick, I completely agree with David. I mean, look, look it's a bad sign that he would be unable to play the upcoming Australian. It's just too much time. The injuries are for real. I, I, I heard a long time ago, back in even the range of 2014 when he's beating Rafa Wimbledon, there were constantly stories circulating in the press rooms and, and lounges about Nick's injuries, how serious they were and how he just didn't want to do surgeries. The one stage we were talking about maybe a surgery on his back. He didn't want it. And I think he's had to fight this throughout his career. And I think his one golden opportunity, uh, David, was what you mentioned, the Wimbledon final. And you can't fault him for it. He won the first set against Novak. And Novak came back and won it in a four-set tiebreak, a first-class match. He lost his serve a couple of times. That was it. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we're going to see that again. I, 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 hope, I hope I'm wrong. It would be exciting to see Curios back in the latter stages of a major again, but I'm, I'm, I'm not at all optimistic. And as for Rafa, I think this is going to very likely be his last year. I just hope that it can unfold with him not, as they say, no more injuries and, and turn in some really good match performances and maybe find his way into the latter stages of a few big tournaments and uh, it's asking a lot, but at least his expectations are not too high. And I think that's that's very wise. And I think with Rafa, just historically over his career, he's generally needed a lot of matches to get into his top shape. He may not get that in the early hardcore season. But as you said, Steve, once he starts playing the clays, if he can get on a roll in a couple of those events and then head into Roland Garros injury free with a bunch of matches under his belt, um, that could that that can do some uh, real good for Rafa and his prospects and in Roland Garros. I do want to um, obviously extend best wishes. We 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 all heard it was just uh, announced yesterday publicly. Best wishes to Chris Abbott. Um, her cancer came back. The good news is that um, what's being reported is the doctors have caught the cancer cells. They got rid of them all, and she's already started chemo. Um, I know everybody in the tennis world is upset that she has to do this again. This is the second time now, but um, she's fighting and, and Steve, you know her better than most. So uh, I know you're, you're extending your, your thoughts to Chrissy as well. Absolutely. You know, I, it was, you have to feel for her because she was so diligent the first time around and the percentage was so low because hers was stage one, ovarian cancer, and it didn't, it seemed very unlikely to come back. It has. They caught it early, which is the great news. And so I, I just know, I, I, one thing I know about her, she maintains a very positive attitude, David. She doesn't say, why me? She says, why not? So I think that helps her to sort of get through this. And she, she had to go through all that chemo the first time around. She'll do it again, and she'll beat this. Amen, Steve. Thank you for sharing, sharing your thoughts. And, and our hopes and prayers are with, with Chrissy. Um, fighting fighting this dreaded disease and um i know she said she's going to skip australia but she said she's hopeful for the 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 remaining slam so we'll see her um sooner rather than later and with that um i do want to uh send a special thank you to someone who helps me behind the scenes a lot gives um gives topics gives stats helps make me look good when we do these episodes and that's a friend a, a friend of the program katie lafollette um, she's been a friend for years. And again, she's, she does a lot of work behind the scenes with these episodes. And then obviously David and Steve, um, we've done this for, for several years now. 
My wife thinks uh, you're both crazy for hanging in with me every year. But uh, David and Steve, this is this is always one of my most fun segments of the year. It Looking back in it, I can't believe it. It's crept up so quick because we do these pretty consistently um, during the course of the year. And, and with that, I wish both of you guys, um, your families, uh, a very happy and healthy new year in 2024. Thank you, David. Uh and and Steve as well. Pleasure being out with both of you. I'm a big fan of the show and uh, love listening both uh, to to our, to our year end show and then also uh, week in week out as we see a lot of amazing tennis play out um, all across the world throughout the year. So uh, thanks again for having me, and uh, we'll look forward to an exciting 2024 campaign. It was. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed today's discussion and uh, recapping the year, reliving some of those golden moments and. All I can say to David Bielenson is my wife thinks you're crazy for putting up with me as your co-host for the entire year. So we're even. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.